Are you passionate about making a difference through design? Join us at the Human Centered Design Network's Circle, a new private community for change makers just like you. Connect with like minded professionals, gain exclusive rights to monthly learning opportunities, and lead the change in human centered design. For more information, see thisishcd.com. Now, let's get back into that episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Doing Design Podcast on This Is HCD, hosted by all the world's best live design and innovation trainers at thisisdoing.com. The Doing Design Podcast focuses on all the behind the scenes things related to actually doing innovation and design, such as design research, facilitation, prototyping, visualization, and it's a great sounding board for industries like service design, UX, content design, and product management. In this episode, you'll hear from myself and Padley, head of faculty at This Is Doing. I'll be joined by Mark Stickdorn, who many of you know already. Mark recently joined us as a trainer at the Doing Design Festival, talking about how to use journey maps as a dashboard for customer and employee experience, or simply put, journey map operations. The Doing Design Festival was all about doing design online. And this topic really sheds some light on how we can work effectively across distributed teams and get an overview of projects while better managing the customer and employee experience across the organization. In this episode, we dive into some of the big questions asked by festival participants during Mark's session. Before we start, I just want to give a big shout out to everyone who joined the Doing Design Festival and contributed some incredible questions for all of the sessions. So, Mark, welcome. It's Thank really you. great to catch up with you after the festival. How's your week been? Hot. It's, it's really warm here right now, which is nice. Finally summer. Yeah, absolutely. It's been pretty warm here in Denver as well, but it's nice to get out in the sunshine, so I can't complain. We just had the Doing Design Festival on Friday Really fun day, incredibly energizing for me at least. And one of the questions that I wanted to just kick us off with is I wanted to hear what one of the highlights was that really stood out for you from the day. I think it was the networking sessions. I joined a few of them and it was really fun to get to know people a bit. And it's because one of the things as a speaker, like sharing from my own perspective, is when you join these conferences, you don't meet a lot of people. And that's the same, by the way, in face-to-face conferences. Like you, there's some prep work, you do interviews around, you're in the green room. So you 
often don't meet people. And in live conference, I enjoy to walk then audience and sit beside other people and, and have a coffee with folks and so on. And that's so hard to do online. So I really enjoy to have these moments where we were put in smaller groups, had random conversations about topics. And I, I didn't really care that much about the conversations we had, like the content, but, but it was more like meeting people, hearing what interests them, what concerns them, what do they take away. And that was really nice. I enjoyed that. Yeah, absolutely. That's something that we heard from the last festival that people loved. They loved the networking part. Last festival, we had planned for one networking session. We eventually got two networking sessions in, which was great, uh, but we really wanted to leave the space for that in this one. So I'm glad to hear that it worked out well. We got really nice feedback from some of the participants as well. They talked about how it's, it was one of the closest mirrors of a real conference that they've experienced. So I really took that as a big win for the day. I would actually say it's better than a real conference. Because if you think of these awkward networking moments when think of a conference and there's like a lunch organized. You sit at a table with different people, you eat together, and there are a bunch of people and you just say, oh shoot. I have to spend an hour of my life with those folks now. And that happens, right? Sometimes it doesn't click. And I think one of the big advantages was that there were actually rather short sessions. And so you didn't need to walk out of a conversation or anything. You spent 10 minutes together and then there were the next people. But what happened was that you found those people where it clicked and then you could actually go into side conversations. So what happened to me was I was on the chat then with people not a live conversation anymore, but we had private chat messages going back and forth. That was really nice. I really enjoyed that. So well done. Yeah, as you're describing that conference lunch, I actually like felt my social anxiety raising a little bit. And I was just thinking, oh, no, I don't know if I want to sign up for a real conference, a, a quote unquote real conference again. Ah, glad we avoided that one. I think you're right. In some ways, the virtual is better. And yeah, it's great to hear. There's always, it seems like when you're in a group of people, there's always you know, one person or a couple people that something just kind of aligns and it starts to click, like you say, and then being able to go off and have those kind of side conversations can be so valuable. And we have the private network that we set up around the conference. So everyone who joined the conference was able to join the private network. And then they could actually connect throughout the day or after the festival there in that private network, which is a really good tool to kind of help continue those conversations as well. And of course, there's fabulous LinkedIn and all of the other tools that we always use anyway. Nice, nice. So, Mark, you ran a session on journey map operations at the festival. And as always, your session was a big hit. So nice work. I was looking through the feedback this week and one of the participants shared that what really stood out for them at the festival was the real practical experiences and the transfer between theory and practice. They said that they want to start immediately, especially with journey map ops. <laughs> so uh, this is a great testament to your session. And I guess just to kick us off, I'm wondering if you could share a quick overview of what was so inspiring for this person so that those people who are listening who couldn't make it to the Doing Design Festival kind of have a sense for what you covered. So that's great to hear. Thanks for sharing. I can't tell like what stood out for them. Actually, my session was kind of a stunt. I had so much content. I was very honest about that in the beginning because I tried to squeeze 
the most important bit of a six weeks coaching program where I usually run one session per week. I usually have like two hours, 90 minutes content, 30 minute Q&A every week. And I try to squeeze that now in like 45 minutes. <laughs> it was a bit crazy, but I think it worked. What it was all about was how can you use a journey map, not within one specific project, but rather as a management tool. And I like to call it an information system for an organization. There are a few steps you need to go through to establish that. The first one is you need to build a hierarchy of maps, a journey map repository. So think of a journey map as a map in geography where you can zoom out and zoom in. You can zoom out, take a look at the whole continent. You don't see a lot of details, but you can zoom in further and further and further to see more details. The same stuff happens with the journey map. So starting with the customer lifecycle, you then nest journeys into each other all the way to details. And I talked a little bit about that and different use cases of journey maps and how to evaluate a map like between past state, current state, future state, or uh, be the product-centered map or an experience-centered map and stuff like that. But I'm really focused on journey map operations. So how, if you have this repository of up-to-date maps, how can you actually operationalize that, that you keep it up-to-date? that you fill in, hopefully in real time, data like what are the projects going on, what are the most urgent pain points, what are for both for customers and employees, what are the KPIs right now, and not just like one KPI, like this is the net promoter score for us, but really for every detailed journey you break down, okay, how do we actually measure success here? from a customer's perspective or HR from an employee perspective. So you end up with loads of performance indicators instead of just one key performance indicator. And then it was all about how do we operationalize that? So what are the different roles we need if we want to bring this into an organization? And how can this information system where it provides the information with how are we performing regarding customer experience or employee experience, what are the pain points, what are the projects, how can this connect with the triple track agile development where you think and sprint. We know there's a move toward research ops, so research as an ongoing activity, design ops, design as an ongoing activity, and DevOps, the same in, in software development. So the one approach there is a triple track agile, where you map out where your projects are, what is currently the dominant activity of each project. And you map it out across those different tracks. You can map it out not only for one project, but for all of your projects. And journey map operations can act as an information system to actually fill up your backlog there. So your decisions on which project should we take uh, on next, which feature should we develop next, which pain point do we need to fix, is less a gut decision by a few people, but more based on actual data. So you really make sure that your project backlog actually matches your employee and customer pain point backlog. That was basically my session. That sounds great. And like you said, it sounds like you've taken kind of this really long journey that you usually take people on and you have fit it into this 40, 45 minute session for us at the festival. You covered a lot of ground there, which is incredible. And I know there were some really good takeaways. And 
So one of the things that we wanted to do here on this podcast today is to actually be able to dive in a little bit deeper to some of the questions that people brought into that session. At the festival, we left about 10, 15 minutes at the end of each session that people could submit questions through an online tool that we were using. You got to a lot of those questions during the day, which was fabulous, but there were also some questions we didn't quite get to. So today I'm gonna bring back a few of those and we can just work through what do you have to say about them? Looking forward so, to it. Excellent. Well, as you were giving the description of your session, one of the things you mentioned was this governance structure. And I'm sure a lot of us who have been out there doing journey maps, kind of working on our own, have that experience of working on that map, but not exactly knowing where it's going to go next. So one of the questions that we had come through about this topic is from Shane. And Shane really wanted to know how we optimize the usefulness of this digital-only journey map. Like, they're all remote now. Where do they live? And how do we start collecting them together? That's a fair point. So if I looked at our clients who start working in this way of, of journey map operations, we see basically two different starting points. Some organizations start on the green field, like they don't have any journeys or at least no useful journeys. So they start from scratch. My tip there is start with a high level map, start mapping out pain points and start building your sub journeys then for where the pain point is to visualize your research results on that and so on. So that's more natural way to actually over time build out your repository. The other way is if you are an organization that's doing service design or at least journey mapping for quite a while, you might have dozens or even hundreds of journey maps. And how do you actually start then? Because you have so much, it's really hard to start. So my tip there is start creating an inventory. Go through all the maps that you have. So I always think of uh, three different use cases for journey maps. There are workshop maps, project maps, and management maps. Uh, workshop maps are the maps you create in a co-creative workshop setting, either for research purposes or for prototyping purposes. Usually you're not really interested in the map per se, but rather in bits of data that you create, that you gain throughout the workshop. And the conversations people have in front of the map are way more important than the map itself. That's why we use tools like Miro, Mural, LucidSpark, digital uh, site or pen and paper post-its in physical workshop settings. And usually what you do is you take a photo of the map and that's it. Like You won't progress that map. The second use case are project maps. And these are the maps you really use in a project within your project team as a boundary object. Where you often start with like current state maps, fill them up with research data through your research, and then focus on pain points, come up with solutions, spin off different future state maps from that. So that's where you really work intensively with a map as a team. The third use case is what I talked about when I talked about journey map operations. These are the maps you keep up to date over time, where you build your repository. We call these maps management maps. So if you do an inventory of your map, for each map that you go through, ask yourself, there's a workshop map, like is it useful to digitize that, to keep it or not? Is it a project map? Then maybe it is useful to digitize it. Or is it actually useful as a management map? 
And usually there are just a few management maps. These are project maps you created, let's say, in the recently within the last one or two years. They're still up to date that you can easily use as a basis for your management maps for your repository. Once you have this inventory, you already reduce the amount of maps. Then the second problem comes into play that probably you didn't standardize in your organizations how to do journey maps, which means the first problem is different software. Some created them in InDesign or Figma, any kind of online collaboration tools. Others are in Excel or PowerPoint. And others are in a dedicated journey mapping software like Snaply. So you have loads and loads of different software which is not compatible. And obviously, if you want to create a hierarchy of maps, you need to be able to link them into each other and keep them up to date. So you need to standardize the software you're using. That was the reason why we started with our software 10 years ago. Now, one thing is you need to find which software you want to use. And one thing we're working on is integration. So currently, you can upload maps from Excel, from Mural, from Miro. You can even upload photos of your posted maps and bring it into Smaply. So that's one thing, how you can standardize and easily get stuff into the software. So at least you use one software there. The second issue is the content of the maps. Often they very different structures. So I talked about the different zoom levels. If you think of geography, there are defined zoom levels you can switch between. So if you look at your maps, another thing for your inventory, for your list that you should add there is which zoom level is this? And you should define the different zoom levels. So over time, you create consistency in zoom levels in the scale you're using between your different maps. By the way, when we talk about a scale in geography, we talk about like kilometers or miles. A scale in a journey map is time. Like what's the duration of the journey you're looking at? We're looking at several months, at several weeks, at a few days, at a few hours, or is it just a moment of like a minute you're looking at, a micro interaction? So you have these different zoom levels that you need to put in place. So if you have your inventory, you can build up kind of a hierarchy, you can put your different maps and different zoom levels, and you will see that it is like a patchwork in the beginning, but you know where you are, and then you can actually, through the linking of the high-level map, step-by-step step update and build your report. That was a very long answer to this question. I'm sorry for that. That's great. <laughs> and you know, whenever you're talking about the zoom levels, in my mind, every single time I see that, 1977 Eames film, The Power of Ten. Every single Ten time, X, I just yeah. kind of imagine that kind of zooming in and zooming out. I imagine the fields, you know, that you can see in that satellite view as the little blocks of different maps that you have. So if that's a, if anyone hasn't seen that video, take a look. The Eames Power of Ten so that you can have that embedded into your mind every time Mark talks about <laughs> zoom levels as well. Yeah, so one of the things that you mentioned is right at the very beginning, you get started by doing an inventory. And I think that's such a great tip, mapping out the maps and then kind of labeling them with which of the three different types of maps they are, labeling them with a zoom level. I think that's such a great way to get started. For those people who are doing service design out there who are listening and they're thinking, yes, I have a lot of journey maps. I'd love to get this started. Who actually takes ownership of that? Who does that inventory? Is it the one service designer who is 
really excited about doing journey map ops and wants to push it up through the organization? Or is it someone else? How do we get that started? And whose role is that? So probably in the beginning, you're right. It is the one person who is really into the topic and wants to get started. But same with embedding and scaling service design in an organization. When you start bringing journey map operations to your organization, have a strategy. Think about where do you want to go with that? One thing we do in coaching program is, for example, we create a stakeholder map where we map out the interesting people in this organization that we need to convince over time. So if we look a few years ahead and we run JourneyMap Ops across the different organizational silos, how would it be set up? So start mapping out like your dream setup and then break it down into tiny steps. So if this is what we want to achieve, who is the most important person that we need to convince that this is a good thing to do? And then think about it. Okay, what is the value for that person? Why should they buy into it? And probably what you do is you start small within your own team. You start mapping just one or two journeys, one or two sub-level journeys, and that's it. But you fill it up with data. You connect it with data so you can show a real use case from your own organization. That is so important because it never works when you show a use case from another organization. People will always say, yeah, that works there, we're different. And they're right. Every organization is different. So make your case within your own organization. Show that it is working and adding value to whoever is working with that. Show that it's valuable to see how are we performing, what are the pain points, what are the projects going on. There's stories you can tell around that. Like you might identify contradicting projects or overlapping projects and try to translate these findings into a financial value because that is kind of the unique language organizations have. If you're able to say, well, we introduced a system, we were able to save amount of X or we were able to increase revenue by X with that or whatever, you really build your case. And when you have your final vision and your tiny steps how to get there, think always about one, two steps ahead, like playing chess, saying, what do we need? Which project now makes sense to convince the next stakeholder that we need? Over time, you then actually roll it out across different departments. And at some point, people will realize that it is a really useful thing to have. Tip there is call it an information system. Don't call it a management approach or something like that. Call it information system to avoid any kind of power games in the organization. What you really want to do is journey map is just a visualization of data. And a journey map is only as useful as the underlying data. So if you select the right data that adds value to your organization, you will see that people take decisions in your organization based on data instead of gut feelings. And that's what we want to achieve with that. Great. And I imagine at some point when you are bringing together all of those different project maps, people probably start to realize that there are a few projects that are duplicates within the organization. And I'm guessing that's a good, even though that's probably a very frustrating feeling to have, that's also a great outcome. And that's exactly the power of doing journey map ops is that you're able to minimize those duplications across the organization. It was one of the things that resonated with a lot of people. Uh, I told the story about one of our clients who already after the very first very first journey map ops, what we call council meeting, where you actually look at it and check 
for duplications or, or overlaps of projects and, and contradictions and so on, they realized in their very first meeting that actually there were two different teams in different departments running basically the same project for over over a year. Like, uh, I think it was 18 months even. Wasting millions. And what they've done afterwards is they actually connected both projects. So suddenly they had more budget, more people working on that and could achieve a way better result in less time. And when I told this story, people were just smiling and they received a lot of chat messages around that where they said, yes, we have that so often in our organization that one department doesn't know what the other one does, but they're often doing the same stuff, but they call it differently and that's why we don't find it out. But if you look at that at a project from a customer perspective and you try to understand where does the project actually impact customer experience, you're more likely to identify these overlaps. Because from a customer perspective, you might say, well, actually, doesn't it do the same thing? You just call it differently. And suddenly it's on the table and you can talk about that. So when we're talking about journey map ops or journey maps in general, you mentioned tools like Smaply and Miro. And these are all ways that now that we're working distributed, we are able to bring journey maps into the digital space. So anyone can access them really at any time that they need to. But I think, as we all know, one of the challenges of digital is also that sometimes if it's out of sight, it's out of mind. We don't have maybe the vertical campfire or the research wall that we once had in, you know, in our shared space in the office. So Kai in the festival had this great question around how do we make sure that our customer journey map still stays top of mind during the project when it's digital, when it's kind of hidden away on the computer. Think about how you can make it part of your ritual. Like you have your weekly stand-up, your monthly team meetings, your all-hands-on-deck meeting, whatever you call it. If you have this repository and you add live data to it, it's a great dashboard of your organization, the performance of your organization from a customer's perspective, or in HR from an employee perspective, in public services from a citizen perspective. So we talk a lot about being human-centered, customer-centered, and so on. That is a great way to actually foster that message within your organization by using these rituals where you meet to actually look at that journey map and see like from a customer perspective, citizen, employee, whatever you focus on, how are we doing right now? And were we able to fix a few pain points in the last month? And you might color it differently and say, yes, we were able to fix, bam, these two pain points off to the next ones. And, and so you use it as a dashboard, include in your retools. And by that, you actually include and keep it on top of your mind, no matter if it's on the wall, physical space in your office, or if you show it. Right. So if I am just getting started doing this with my team, it's not wider in the organization yet, just kind of isolated to my team right now. What is one of the first mini rituals that I could do to make sure that this is really surfaced regularly within my team? Do you have any advice for that? You will have a hard time to really bring that to life if you put it on the workload of people who are already here. Like if people have a full day and then you put it on top of it, it will be hard to get this real should be part of a job. And roughly, I say you need three days per month if you are a coordinator to take care of that. So take that into account. 
if you want to bring it to your team, do people have time to actually do it? And if not, think about how you can make time for it. Maybe you can create it as part of a project setup. Uh, so actually it becomes part of their job and they have time to do it. Otherwise, people will just pass on and say, oh, I forgot that, I won't do it. It will never fly. Once you have that, then think about responsibilities. So who is responsible to keep JourneyMap Ops in your organization running? Who is the one, like the master of ceremony? And in Scrum, we talk about the Scrum master. So who is the one who's poking people and just checking in like, hey, did you check if your journey map is up to date? Were there any changes this month? Did you check if the pain points are still relevant? Did we fix any of those? Can you please check? So there's one person who should be the master of the ceremony and poke people and say, okay, what? keep on doing it. And then there are the coordinators who are actually checking the journey map and adding pain points to it or updating KPIs. You can automate all that, but in the beginning, it's usually manual work until you are in a state where you can automate stuff and, and link it into your ticketing system, for example. So you automatically see the biggest pain points that you have per journey and stuff like that. Um, if you have those, if you have someone who is responsible of taking care of the process and you have folks responsible for one, two, three journey maps, then you have a good setup to get it started. Great. So this all really comes back to that governance system that you mentioned at the very beginning, that it doesn't just happen on its own. You kind of set it up and put it away and it will work its magic while it's hidden. It's really about creating a governance system, creating some roles and responsibilities around it to help make sure that the journey maps are come up, are, uh, are kept up to date. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned the Scrum Master, and this is something that Maya picked up in your session at the festival. And they wanted to know, would it be helpful to create a name equivalent for the Scrum Master for the mapping field? So what would that job title be, Mark? <laughs> I need to look up. We have different roles and names for it, but honestly, you never implemented in an organization out of a textbook. You're, you should be using your own terminology that works and sticks within your organization. So I like to use terms like coordinator or the journey map manager and the journey map champion and the council meetings. And that's kind of the wordings I use. But honestly, I think it's more important that you choose a wording that sticks in your organization. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. I'm going to shift the conversation a little bit, and I'm going to go to a question that Matthew asked. And Matthew asked if you would see a noticeable difference if you started doing service blueprint operations in place of journey map operations. So maybe we can just kick this one off uh, just for those who might be new to service design who are listening. If you could just give us a quick example of a difference between a service blueprint and a journey map and then dive into what that would look like differently for operations. Yeah, absolutely. Service Blueprint is not a different tool. It is just a journey map with a specific set of lanes underneath. And um, the core difference is a journey map visualizes what's happening on stage. Like, what does a customer experience? A Blueprint, on top of that, also maps out what is happening backstage. So what are the activities an organization needs to do, be it by people or be it by IT systems, that 
an organization need to do to achieve a certain experience mapped out in the customer journey. And that is basically what we do with management maps anyway. They're always a combination of on-stage and backstage. So I would say it doesn't change because we're doing it anyway. However, the focus should always be on the customer journey. And that is one of the problems around service blueprints when you use that in organizations. That a lot of people get very much drawn to the internal process, hang up in the internal process. They tend to forget the customer journey, which should be the leading experience because they're so much into their day-to-day work of their internal processes. That's what they work with. So giving it too much focus means you might, again, forget the customer and end up in business process modeling instead. And that's what we try to overcome with that actually because we want to put the customer or the citizen or the employee in the focus of this system and that's why a strong leading experience by a customer is absolutely important instead of having too many lanes with like what are the different actors and what are they doing and even flow charts underneath i would rather then refer to any kind of flowchart software that you use and say, look, we're triggering this experience from a customer triggers a certain internal process. And here's a link to the process documentation if you're interested in that. The process duration is X amount of minutes or days or whatever. And then you have another step where you say, well, now the internal process actually triggers a certain customer experience. That's often when the customer receives a message that something is done or that, I don't know, whatever you you work on. So you really focus rather on the customer experience instead of internal processes. Great. I think that comes back to the three types of maps that you kind of mentioned at the front of this podcast. You mentioned there's the workshop map, the project map, and the management map. So it's really about hitting that management map and making sure that you're framing that in the right way that it's going to work for journey map ops. And that gets us a little bit closer to this this question around service blueprint as well. Correct. Although you can do uh, a service blueprint, you, you also have the three different use cases, right? You can use a co-creative workshop as a research method for your internal team. You can do service blueprint. In a project, you can do a service blueprint. Management maps are often any way combination there. And that's where I would say, nah, maybe don't create a blueprint because then you're basically just recreating flowcharts that probably you have thousands of in your organizations already. Yeah. Absolutely. It all sounds a bit complex, but you mentioned some tools that can help manage this. What is the number one tool for kind of helping manage these different Zoom levels and making sure that you're actually managing these journey maps across the organization? So with tool you're referring to is software? Thank you for that, but I hate to do advertisement for my own company. A little biased on this one, maybe. But of course, I recommend our own software, which is Smaply. And that's the reason why we started building Smaply 10 years ago. I'm coming from doing project work, right? And if I think back 10 years ago, I saw this strong pattern in organizations, how they actually do journey mapping. Either you had designers using tools like InDesign, and the maps looked beautiful, but they were static. They didn't get updated. They were not widely shared and co-created an organization but because you always needed that one designer to do a change on it right and you don't want to poke the designer again and again and again so they were rather static and the other pattern was there were organizations using microsoft excel and stuff like that horribly looking 
journey maps, but accessible for the whole organization. And that was something we wanted to change. So we said we need a tool that is both accessible, easy to use for many in the organization, but still creating good-looking results within a short time. It, nothing was on the market at that time, so we said we built it ourselves. And there we are. Now we're a software company and not an agency. Excellent. So, Mark, you have been a frequent guest on this podcast. And my last question is just what do you always wish we would ask you and we never actually get to at the end? <laughs> I was here quite often, and I think people get sick of me already. But I think because we were here in so many conversations, I don't have anything new to tell. And you know everything about me. You even know that I used to be a surf teacher. <laughs> <laughs> you have it here. Mark's an open book. I am kind of, yeah. Thank you so much for covering off some of these questions and answers that we had at the Doing Design Festival we really appreciate you joining the show again. So thank you for being on here. And we will look forward to chatting with you again in the future, hopefully. Looking forward to it. Thank you. All right. Excellent. Thanks so much, Mark. So everyone, thanks for joining this episode of the Doing Design Podcast on This Is HCD. I'm your host for this episode, Anne Padley, head of faculty at This Is Doing. Recording-only tickets for the Doing Design Festival are still available. So if you're interested in what we talked about in this episode, you want to hear Mark's full session and collect his session slides, as well as join the community conversation, head over to doingdesignfestival.com to grab your recording tickets. 